Welcome to Barry and Lambert's Solicitors podcast series, Planning for Your Future. In this series, we explain in detail how life planning can help you navigate your way through the ups and downs, and how getting your affairs in place now can assist your loved one's future responsibilities. Barry and Lambert Solicitors, we're right by you, through the good times, challenging times, and sad times. I'm Paul Harvey, and welcome to this series of podcasts with Barry and Lambert. And today I'm with Joanna Files, a solicitor with Barry and Lambert, and we'll be talking about gifts and loans and the inheritance tax implications. So a warm welcome, Joanna. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Good to have you with us. Now, Joanna, could I ask you to describe your role with Barry and Lambert? I'm a private client solicitor for the firm. I specialise in estate planning, so wills lasting powers of attorney, inheritance tax and administration of estates. Also touch on a bit of trust work and deputyship applications. That sort of later life planning mainly and uh, estate administration. Thank you, Joanna. Before we embark on a more kind of generic conversation, can I give you a scenario? A client is widowed and wants to help his daughter purchase a property worth £500,000 and intends on giving her £300,000 towards the purchase. So what are the implications here when we're considering gifts or loans? Well, firstly, lucky daughter. You said he was widowed. Did his wife or spouse leave everything to him when when they passed away? Should we assume that she did? Okay, no, that's fine. That helps us in terms of understanding what available nil rate bans there are for his estate when he eventually passes away. So assuming the wife left everything to him when she died, his estate would be able to claim her unused transferable nil rate band along with his transferable nil rate band. Has he made any other gifts in the last seven years that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. So, you know, £300,000 is a very significant gift and that would potentially eat into his nil rate band allowance for the next three years. So the nil rate band allowance is the maximum that you can leave without inheritance tax being incurred. So the current nil rate band allowance for 2020-2021 is £325,000. So potentially he's eating into 300000 of that £325,000 allowance. Assuming he's in good health, is he likely to live the next seven years? Good question. What if the daughter has a small mortgage of 200000 to cover the balance? Does this have any implication? It will do, because usually lenders will want the um, party who's contributing towards the purchase price to sign a deed of gift. And what that does is effectively says, you know, father will not have any claim on the property. And essentially, it, you know, the contribution he's making is a gift and it's hers. So the only other interest in the property aside from hers would be the lender. So if the client doesn't want the money to be treated as a gift as it would affect his estate, which is actually worth $1.3 for inheritance tax, should he die within the next seven years. What are your thoughts on that? There's not much you can do, really. If he wants to give her £300,000, that's the gift he's making. Obviously, you'll have your annual allowances. So the annual allowance is £3,000 per tax year, but that's globally. If he hasn't used his annual allowance from the previous tax year, then he could use that. But that's only going to reduce the £300,000 gift by a maximum of £6,000. Ideally, he'd make the gift and survive the seven years, and then that would be outside of his estate for inheritance tax purposes. 
There are other things you can do, gifts out of income, but um, really he'd need to speak to a financial advisor about setting that type of thing up. Potentially, you know, if the wife died within the last two years, he could have varied the terms of her will to make the gift from her estate, but I wouldn't suggest doing that because then that reduces the amount of transferable narrow band available from her estate to his estate. So essentially make the gift five to seven years then it's outside of the estate reduces the estate down to a million pounds he will have his full three hundred and twenty five thousand pound allowance plus his wife's three hundred and twenty five thousand pound allowance and potentially the residence nil rate band allowance if he's got a property and he's leaving that to his direct lineal descendants uh, which is currently one hundred and seventy five thousand pounds and again he'll be able to transfer any unused residence nil rate band from his late wife's estate meaning that there'd be a maximum combined uh, allowance of a million pounds so that should make the estate exempt once he's made the gift of 300,000. And if the client dies within seven years of making the gift what happens then? I did actually have this happen a couple of times on, on oh. a few of my states once where the person died six years and nine months in and it means that the whole gift still eats into your nil rate band allowance and it, it reduces the amount of nil rate band allowance available for your estate. So of that million pound potential allowance he's got take off 300,000 so there would be a tax liability there so someone is responsible for that so yeah so his executors would deal with that and his estate would pay the IHT and there's no way around that then if you die within seven years not really not without doing some interesting and complicated things you'd really need to speak to a financial advisor if you were looking making gifts of that size and if you were unlikely to survive the the full period they might be able to devise a way to help mitigate your inheritance tax liability but for the average person it would be difficult to do particularly as he's making a gift of the 300,000 and there's a lender involved. The lender isn't really going to want him to be added to the title as a secondary charge if he were to say, you know, this is a loan rather than a gift. And even if he were to describe it as a loan rather than a gift, call a spade a spade. If it's a gift, it's a gift you're giving it freely to the other person. If it's a loan, there's an intention for that to be repaid. And of course, if he dies at any point and there is a loan outstanding, then that loan is an asset of his estate, which will be called back uh, at the point that he dies. So would you sort of advise that really it should be a a gift or it should be a loan? What's the bottom line here? It really depends on the intention of the person. Like I said, call a spade a spade. You know, if there is no intention for that money to be repaid, then it is a gift. But if there is an intention for the money to be repaid, then it's a loan. But the loan technically is an asset of his estate. So if he dies in any part of that it remains outstanding, then that would still be considered an asset of his estate at any point that he dies, regardless of the seven-year rule. It's up to the client, really. The client decides whether he wants to make it a loan or she wants to make it a loan or a gift. So can you just remind us how much of the nil rate band allowance you can claim for from uh, somebody's late wife's estate in this in this situation? So assuming the spouse has not made, the spouse who died first has not made any um, gifts of their own within the seven years before they died and assuming that they left their estate to the surviving spouse, you've got the general nil rate band, which is currently £325,000, plus the residence nil rate band, which is currently £175,000. There are a few caveats to the application of the residence nil rate band. Your estate needs to be under £2 million. For every £2 that you're over the £2 million threshold, you lose a pound of the um, residence nil rate band. You need to have a property that 
you've at some point lived in and that you're leaving it to your direct lineal descendants. There is quite a broad description about what constitutes as a direct lineal descendant. So it will include, obviously, children, grandchildren, but also stepchildren and any child that you've fostered. But it does discriminate against people who don't have children or or direct lineal descendants. So for those people who are potentially single or don't have any children, then they're limited to their own nil rate band or just the transferable nil rate, general nil rate band from the spouse who died first. Are you coming across scenarios where this involves kind of international transactions as well? Is that within your remit as well? Not usually. We don't see many of those. It does happen on occasion where there are foreign assets. So generally the rule with foreign assets is if it's movable, so something you can pick up and move, then if you're domiciled in the United Kingdom, then you can apply to have your will apply to those movable assets. But if it's not movable, for example, if you had a property abroad, then it's usually the country or the territory in which the property is in that takes precedence the jurisdiction takes precedence there. So it can be difficult dealing with assets that are abroad. And usually the best advice is that you take advice from a solicitor in that country and usually have a will drawn up limited to just those assets in that particular country. And similarly in the UK, you limit your will to only assets here. So there's no overlap. So do you think there'll be people listening to this thinking, actually, I really should have my will looked at? to make sure that there's some real clarity between gifts and loans? Quite often you'll find with families, they have these sort of unspoken agreements and quite often it's not documented. So I'm I'm working on a a state at the moment where the son actually made a loan to his mum, but there's nothing in writing to document the loan or that it ever was a loan. You know, arguably you could say it was a gift because, again, without them having set out ideally in writing the terms of the agreement then it can be quite difficult and you have to sort of when everyone's alive it's much easier because you can talk to everyone but of course if someone dies then you're just relying on the surviving person's version of events yeah and I guess you know while it was a loan perhaps it wasn't intended to be repaid yeah I think in that particular situation the son you know agreed that he wouldn't call in the debt until mother died and that's okay but obviously there is still an intention for that loan to be repaid If there is no intention for the loan to be repaid, then of course it's a gift. Look, in terms of lenders asking you to sign a deed of gift, is that something you should be wary of or what are the implications with that? Actually, that's a really good question. I did have a client a few years ago who came in and they were looking to buy property with their children and they were going to contribute towards the purchase of the property. Um, But they were also going to live in the property with their child there was going to be a lender and the child provided them with a declaration of gift and the deed of gift um, effectively waived or would have waived the parents right to the property but of course the parents intending on living in the property with the child so in that situation really take some advice for lots of parents they probably won't have an interest in their child's property and it's great when a parent can help their child purchase a property it's very difficult to get on the property ladder Um, so if they've got a bit of extra money and they're able to assist their child that's a really lovely thing for them to be able to do and most parents won't retain an interest in the property in that in those circumstances so a deed of gift would be appropriate 
But in situations like that, where the parent was actually going to live in the property with the child, what they were effectively doing was waiving their interest. They weren't even going to be named on the title because the lender, as far as they were aware, it was just you know, going to be a property that child was going to live in and the child was going to be on the title. They didn't know that there was this agreement with the family that actually mum and dad would come and live with them. And sometimes that doesn't always happen at the same time. Obviously, sometimes, you know, a parent will give money to their child and then later on move in with their child. So it all just sort of depends on the circumstances and what the intentions were at that point in time. And again, documenting it. A lot of families don't document these agreements because it's difficult, you know, when you've got family and money, it can be a difficult subject to broach. And a lot of us are raised not to talk about money, but actually in those situations, it's really important. No, I can imagine it is. And then you've, you've got these implications of living beyond seven years or not surviving, which could add complications. Certainly, it can cause problems later on down the line, particularly if, as I said, it's not documented properly because it just becomes a he said, she said situation, um, which is not ideal. And again, you know, at that point in time, you're already grieving the loss of your family member. You don't then want to have to get in a dispute with um, other family members about something they said several years ago. I can imagine. Has anything come out of this COVID scenario that we've been through? Are there any kind of new scenarios that you've come across with clients that perhaps you didn't come across so often before? There was always a growing number of people trying to do their own estate administration. And I'm not going to go into it too much because I know there's going to be a separate podcast in that. But I think there has been a growing number of people trying to just do the estate administration themselves. And whilst that can be effective, particularly on first death when you're mostly transferring things to the surviving spouse or civil partner it can be a bit more problematic on second death. And of course, if you don't get it right on the first death, you're just storing up problems later on on second death. And that is a growing trend. Similarly with wills, you should be able to write your own will yourself if you want to. And that's the beauty of um, the law in England and Wales is that it allows you to do that. But, but the problem is that you need to sort of meet certain criteria in order for that will to be valid. And some people are better at it than others every now and then you get people that um, pick up these will packs and some of them can be great and very useful as a resource but often I find that people don't always read through them properly and they use language that they're familiar with that they know what they mean when they say I want to leave my worldly goods to my family but actually family as a term is a very broad definition And they may not necessarily intend for that to reach distant aunts, cousins, all sorts. They may just mean their immediate family. Um, So using the right language when you're writing a will is very important. And there are a lot of pitfalls there that people may not necessarily be aware of because it's obvious to them when they say family, they mean mum, dad, my brothers, sisters. They don't necessarily mean to include, you know, auntie, uncle, cousins, nephew, nieces, everyone dog and the cat yeah <laughs> some people that is their definition of family of course yeah. the dog and cat. well exactly so i'm sure that in a lot of cases it's not that straightforward if people think it is straightforward mm. there's always going to be some curveball that comes into the, the makeup the beneficiary kind of breakdown won't be quite as straightforward as they think it is so i can see there are pitfalls of the of the diy route 
few years ago I worked on on an estate where the lady had done a DIY will and it cost her nothing to do it but we ended up spending about £2,000 on council's opinion just trying to get the will interpreted because the way it was drafted it was so open-ended it wasn't Mm. clear you know what she actually intended although it probably felt you know blindingly obvious but actually it was so broadly drafted it was open to interpretation and we had to go and seek council's opinion on it that speaks for itself i think (laughs) so joanna the topic of course as we started off by describing is about gifts versus loans could you please just briefly talk about the way gifts and loans should be laid out in a will what are your thoughts on that Again, it depends on the circumstances. So, for example, in that situation where the father had given his daughter £300,000 towards the purchase of property, if there are other children that he has and he might want to rebalance the benefit that he's given her now, then you can do that in a will. It's called a hotchpot clause. So what that means is there'll be a clause in the will that says, you know, look, any gifts that I've made during my lifetime to my other children, um, I want that brought into consideration when dealing with the administration of my estate and that does sometimes happen where parents give money to their children during their lifetime to help them with the purchase of property or just help them out generally but they want that brought back into the accounting when they die so that all the children end up on an equal footing Um, so that can be quite a useful tool but once again it relies on people keeping records so that we know how much the gift was and we know what the agreement was in terms of loans if the deceased has made a loan then technically it's an asset of the estate so again that needs to be brought back into consideration and again you need to document whether there was any interest due on the loan what the terms of the loan agreement were but if the deceased has a loan so if they've got a liability themselves then that will obviously reduce the value of the estate so going back to where that situation where the son had made a loan to his mother you would want that documented somewhere so that when the mother eventually passes away her executors know that there is this outstanding debt that her estate will need to satisfy once she passes away There's a lot of very useful information here, Joanna. I think we'll come to a close now. But if people want more information, Joanna, how can they contact you? I suppose the first thing to do would be to just call, actually. The firm is really good and you're more than likely to be connected to a a solicitor or another Fianna straight away. That is one of the nice things about using a firm of this size is that you actually get to speak to your legal advisor more or less straight off the bat. Um, The number is 01892 526344. Alternatively, if you just want to make a tentative inquiry, you can do that online. If you go to the firm's website, there's inquiry section there. And also we have our direct emails also online if you would like to email us directly. And Joanna, could you just remind everyone where the other offices are? So the main offices in Tunbridge Wells, but we have offices in Sevenoaks and Paddockwood. And we're pretty flexible about attending the other offices. And I think with COVID, like with lots of other firms, we've adapted. So we also offer meetings over Microsoft Teams, Zoom. We always offer telephone appointments anyway, but um, sometimes it can be quite nice to see people face to face because then you get a better understanding of the person and facial cues and all that type of thing and which you don't always necessarily pick up over the phone so it can be quite a useful tool doing that and I know some people feel a bit safer particularly now that we're not quite over it yet having meetings that way. If you go to the firm's website under the team section and um, there'll be 
you know, everyone in our department with our direct email. So, you know, if you want to get in touch, you're welcome to contact us that way. Joanna, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. So I was joined by Joanna Files, private client solicitor at Berry and Lambert's for this podcast. Thank you for listening to Berry and Lambert Solicitors podcast series, planning for your future. Find out more about us, our services, and what our clients say at berryandlambert.co.uk. Berry and Lambert Solicitors is regulated by the Solicitors Regulation Authority and a proud member of Lawnet, the UK and Ireland's leading network of independent law firms promoting excellence and best practice. Please note that the information provided in this podcast series does not constitute legal advice and serves as a general guide only. The law may have changed since this podcast was recorded. Listeners should seek tailored legal advice from a solicitor who will take your individual and personal circumstances into consideration.